Welcome to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. I'm Shannon Powell. Today, we're talking about the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker coming up on Tuesday, December 6th. This is the second time in two years that Georgia has had a runoff election for the U.S. Senate. A win in Georgia will give Democrats 51 seats, an outright majority that would make it easier to move legislation and control committees. It would also minimize the influence of Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who have blocked some of Biden's agenda. Sarah Riggs Amico joins us to talk about the latest from Georgia. Sarah is a former Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor in U.S. Senate and is also a founder of Our America Dreams PAC. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. So great. Um, Sarah, this was a tight race during the general with only a one point difference between Warnock and Walker. But tell me, how has the runoff campaign been different from what you saw in the general election? Well, I think leaving just Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker as sort of the last two standing really brightens the contrast between the two. And, and honestly, I'm not sure there's ever been a bigger contrast in Georgia politics. This is, on the one hand, a reverend and a United States senator who has time and again delivered for the state of Georgia, whether that was putting $1,400 checks in the pockets of Georgians during the depths of the pandemic when they needed it most, delivering the American Rescue Plan, helping facilitate um, the CHIPS Act in the United States Senate to protect our high-tech sector and invest over $50 billion in our semiconductor chip industry onshore, um, or whether that was passing the PACT Act, where victims of burn pits that our veterans who put their lives on the line to protect our freedoms are now insured health care after their exposure to these toxins in the burn pits. It's really just one thing after another that this Congress, this administration, and Senator Warnock have delivered for Georgians, uh, not to mention bipartisan infrastructure, which 20 years worth of presidents from both parties have promised and not been able to deliver. So you've got Senator Warnock on the one hand, who's done all of these remarkable things with the Biden-Harris administration for the people of Georgia, and all of that with a 50-50 Senate. And on the other hand, you have Herschel Walker, who has not been able to tell the truth about anything. He's lied about having one of the largest minority-owned businesses in the United States. They had six employees. He lied about being the valedictorian of his college. He did not graduate. He couldn't even tell the truth about the number of children he had. And, you know, that is probably some of the least offensive stuff that he said. He's talking about a nationwide ban on abortion. He's talking about he doesn't understand why we need a quote unquote whole week of early voting. Um, And he's talking about some things that really are just borderline inexplicable and disqualifying for somebody running for public office, vampires and werewolves and the good air and the bad air from China. Um, It would be funny if it weren't so very serious, not just for the state of Georgia, but for the country. So the contrast has never been clearer. And I think it also really makes it obvious to voters here in Georgia how dramatically Herschel Walker underperformed even his own party. And and look, the statewide Republican ticket, from my perspective, didn't have a lot of great candidates. Um, The commissioner of agriculture candidate was elected. The labor commissioner 
again, Republican labor commissioners, a little bit of an oxymoron, right? Um, those guys got across the finish line on November 8th, but Herschel Walker underperformed Republican Governor Brian Kemp by 200,000 votes. So I think even Republicans understand that this is a man, Herschel Walker, who's summarily unfit and unqualified to serve in the U.S. Senate. That's where I think the race stands today. And I think having just the Senate race on the ballot really clarifies that contrast for a lot of voters. The, uh, the Georgia Supreme Court just reinstated a six-week abortion ban. Is this going to have an impact on the race? And if so, how? Absolutely. Um, look, I don't want to live in a state where my daughters have fewer rights than my grandmother and great-grandmother had. I mean, this is, this is nuts. It's a private decision that should be made between a woman and her partner, her doctor, her healthcare provider, her God, if she has one. But I think the way that Reverend Warnock has put it time and again, makes a lot of sense when there's not enough room in that physician's office, making a medical decision for the woman, her partner, her God, her physician, and the U.S. government, um, or the government of the state of Georgia. So Certainly, I think you'll see women energized and young voters, and, and the early vote numbers showed that, right? Over the weekend, um, Saturday voting, and also Sunday voting, the souls to the polls events, the 18 to 24 demographic has really overperformed everything except um, the, the age group that goes from 50 to 55, or 50 to 54, and then 55 to 59. So young people are turning up. They understand what it means to have to be a college student um, or a young adult without access to a full spectrum of reproductive care. And, and the abortion ban here in Georgia was designed to rally the Republican base. It was not designed to be good public policy. It certainly wasn't designed to be a public health benefit. Um, this is something that puts women in some of the most difficult and, and in many cases, um, particularly for later term abortions, some of the most tragic decisions that women will have to make. Uh, many of these women had pregnancies that were desperately wanted um, and the pregnancies are no longer viable. Um, it puts now those women and their physicians at the center of a struggle for political power, as opposed to putting them in the comfort and privacy of their physician's offices making the health care choice that's best for them and their families. And, and that's really an indictment of where Republican politics are today. So what are some of the other issues, especially now that you have the runoff, you know, between Walker and Warnock, what other issues are resonating um, in this runoff election with voters? Competence and character. You know, if you look at the ability to do the job, um, Herschel Walker, after the November 8th general election, when we knew there was going to be a runoff, he had a series of 20 campaign events right off the bat. And in not a single one of those 20 events did he take questions from anyone who was not in the right wing media. Um, think about what that says. Um, I am absolutely confident the Republican Party muzzled him because they know he is a loose cannon. They know he's a liability. They know he's unqualified, uh, but they're so desperate, so craven to have political power. They simply don't care whether or not he can be a good representative of the people of Georgia. So I think, you know, it's funny in some of those 20 events as Herschel Walker's not taking questions, by the way, they would literally have like Ted Cruz next to him 
taking questions, which makes it even more awkward that the, you know, the Republican candidate in Georgia is just kind of standing by mute. And um, is so great as we all know. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I, I don't think anybody up to and including Mitch McConnell, who's called it a, a matter of candidate quality, I believe, although he didn't name names, I'm most certain he included Herschel Walker in that group. Um, he's not qualified. Herschel Walker is, is not competent for this role. And by the way, he's certainly not qualified in the state of Georgia. Um, Herschel Walker took his homestead exemption, his tax exemption for his primary residence in 2022, this year, and 2021 in Texas. He, he doesn't live in our state. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a sad state of affairs. Number one, that the Republicans had to go out of state and sort of import to find a, care, a candidate who could take on Reverend Warnock. Um, but that this was the best they can do is absolutely mind blowing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think on the issues of character, let's let's not forget who Herschel Walker is. We're, we're not voting for Football Hall of Fame. We're voting for a U.S. senator. And this is a man who's not only admitted to in public and talked about repeatedly putting a gun to his ex-wife's head and threatening to, quote, blow her brains out. Um, he's written a book about it. And then when asked about dissociative identity disorder and his mental health um, challenges, his mental illness that he's suffered, he basically said, I don't need help anymore. I go to church. Well, I go to church too. Um, but I don't go to church to get mental health resources. And, um, and I just can't imagine how anyone can justify having somebody who, you know, borderline brags about putting a gun to his ex-wife's head and letting him vote on things like re-upping the Violence Against Women Act. Um, right. It is devastating to survivors across this country to see this man held up in this way. Um, so competence and character, those are two of the biggest issues on the ballot. Um, so, so do you think, Sarah, that then Republicans are kind of changing their tune regarding Walker because he underperformed the other Republicans and he's had so many scandals and there's less emphasis as who he is as a candidate, more about like it's just we need to stop the Democrats? What's your what's your view about that? I think they're just trying to shut him up, to be honest, keep him out of sight and off the airwaves, because when he does talk, you know, it's a massive embarrassment. Um, they don't know if he's going to disclose more children. Um, more abortions that he's reputedly paid for. And I think a rallying cry for Georgia women has become, we'd like as many rights as Herschel Walker's girlfriends had, right? Um, and it's, I say that tongue in cheek, but it's a very interesting dynamic in the race that you have 88% of evangelicals, 72% of white women who were supporting, you know, a candidate that's talked about a national ban on abortions, but is accused of, um, pressuring multiple partners into having abortions they didn't want, um, who, who's in no way, shape, or form lived the values that he's talked about legislating based on his personal beliefs um, for people who may not share that faith or certainly don't agree with him. Uh, and by the way, for many of us who share you know, the same faith, it's very puzzling to watch Herschel Walker talk about how his religion in some way, shape, or form might qualify him to serve. I mean, he's running against a pastor, number one. Right, number two, right. you're not running to be our religious representative. You're running to be a U.S. senator. Right. So I want to hear where you are on foreign policy. I want to hear where you are 
on um, on the economy. I want to hear where you are on economic development. I want to hear where you are on the expansion of civil and human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hear a philosophy on governing. And instead, again, we've got Herschel Walker, who is a pathological liar that talks about werewolves and vampires. I mean, it's really just stunning. It, it, it's really, it is, uh, it, it, it really is, it really is almost mind boggling. I mean, the things that have come out that, you know, still seem to, he almost seems to be kind of Teflon proof. I mean, it was a one point race again. I mean, that's really tight. Uh, you know, Warnock was ahead in the general, but I mean, it, just to think that it was that close again is mind boggling to me, but are you concerned that Democrats might not possibly be as enthused to come out and vote in the midterm because Democratic control of the Senate is already decided. I know this will help Democrats grow the majority, but do you think that that might that might kind of dampen turnout or do you think that that's not kind of at play here? Well, it depends, right? So I think for sort of the inside baseball folks, the people who really pay attention to, to policy and politics, they're going to understand that there's a very big difference in terms of the power sharing agreement that's currently in place between having a 50-50 Senate with Vice President Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker and having 51 votes, right? Um, that That's a very different, even in things like the speed of confirmation of nominees and judges, which I think will be very important in these final two years of Biden's first term, um, they're going to understand it's a very big difference. For regular folks, I don't think they look at it that way. Uh, But I also don't think they're saying, "Eh, we got Nevada, so we're good. I think what they're thinking about is who can best serve my family? Who can best serve our needs in the state of Georgia? And again, when you look at these two candidates, it's it's really not a close choice. (laughs) Um, And I'm not saying that as a partisan, but I, I almost feel silly saying words like werewolf and vampire on your <laughs> podcast here, but right, I'm just right. what, you know, the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate is talking about. Um, it, it really, and that's when he opens his mouth at all. You know, he didn't have a single campaign event from mm-hmm. like Tuesday of last week until today. Whereas Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock had six different campaign rallies over the weekend. And so my, my, my perception is Georgians want somebody who makes them feel seen and heard and valued. They want somebody who understands how these policies are not just academic pie in the sky exercise, but how they really intersect with our daily lives. Right. And they want somebody who will tell them the truth, even when it's not something they necessarily want to hear. And on all of those metrics, it's hard to see how anybody could prioritize a candidate like Herschel Walker, again, who seems serially incapable of telling the truth, um, doesn't understand the issues, and displays very little interest in understanding how policy intersects with our lives versus Reverend Warnock, who's been serving his community for decades. So who does Warnock have to get out uh, to vote in order to win and why? You know, I do think to a certain extent, this is going to be a base turnout. Um, The Republicans passed uh, SB 202, Senate Bill 202 last session, which is effectively a a form of voter suppression law. And that cut the runoff time down from nine weeks to four. And by the way, you don't have to take my word for it that it's voter suppression. Uh, Governor Kemp was caught on tape saying we didn't like the outcome in 2020 and the Senate runoffs in 2021. 
And so we, quote unquote, did something about it. And that's how the Republicans talked about their bill. So uh, they can take a seat when it comes to saying how it was something designed to protect uh, our, our vote in the integrity of our elections. It was not. It was something designed to take away advantages in the electorate that opened up voting to so many more communities and typically favored Democrats here in Georgia. So I do think it's a base turnout election. I do think it's a lightning round because of SB 202. Um, but all indications are that the Democrats understand the assignment and we're getting it done. So it shouldn't be a close election. I worry it'll be closer than a lot of people expect. Um, what I would hate to see happen is for Democrats to assume or independents to assume or reasonable Republicans to assume that Senator Warnock has it locked up and ergo they can stay home on election day um, because I think the risk to the Republic, not just the state of Georgia is enormous and having Herschel Walker in the U.S. Senate. Um, I think this is a turn out the base runoff. With a, with a bonus for sort of getting those same independent-minded voters out for Reverend Warnock again. So Sarah, I want to talk a little bit about New York because we had some pretty disappointing election results here. We lost several House seats and turnout for Democrats was an issue in many areas across the state. I'm a big proponent of looking at what organizations in other states are successfully doing and replicating those efforts whenever possible. What do you think we could learn from organizing efforts in Georgia? Ah, it's a great question, Shannon. Um, as you know, I lived in New York for five years um, when I was much younger, but I, I have a great affection for your state. And I do think that in many ways, um, what Georgia organizers have done over the last 10 or 15 years in our state to take a, a state that was virtually written off as ruby red and entrenched um, into what is arguably the premier battleground state in the country is something that all Democrats everywhere, including in New York, can learn from. And the secret to success really wasn't about um, a candidate. Democrats, we love to fall in love with our candidates, right? We we love candidates that we can feel warm and fuzzy about. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, that, and it is great when you love your candidate and they're competent and they have character and they're doing it for the right reasons at the right time. They don't you like know, vampires and werewolves. <laughs> they do not talk about vampires or werewolves. Right. Um, you know, it, it, that's those are all good things. But in the end, I think it's the people whose names we don't really know who make the difference, right? Mm -hmm. It's the people knocking doors. It's the people leaving text and phone banks. It's the people who have never done any of the above who sign up to send text messages or to cold call their neighbors. I mean, that's it's deeply uncomfortable. If, if you're listening to this and you haven't done it, make it a point to sign up for that. Mm -hmm. um, understand what it feels like to call somebody and try to engage them in our democracy because it matters. I would look at what groups like the New Georgia Project or Fair Fight Action have done here in Georgia. But it's not just them. It's Black Voters Matter. I had a chance to um, speak with Cliff Albright on MSNBC this weekend, and he's fabulous. I mean, the, the, this organization is really, really speaking to voters. Or if you look at national organizations like Voto Latino, they are really targeting um, very specific voters with tailored custom messaging 
mm-hmm. that is meant to not just turn out their vote in one election, but to engage and invigorate and generate enthusiasm for being a part of the political process. So, you know, that's the lesson I think people can take from Georgia. Um, Stacey Abrams doesn't get enough credit for the work she did to build that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get enough credit for helping us flip the state in 2020 and 2021, I don't think. Um, I, I think her vision of going out and figuring figuring out who wasn't voting, who wasn't being spoken to, who wasn't being engaged, and then getting it done, making sure that nobody felt left out or left behind. That's a model you can take anywhere in this country. And, you know, from the donor side, I've had conversations, particularly with good friends who are still in the city, um, but, but New Yorkers more broadly. I think there was a lot of confusion down the home stretch as to where to put their money if they wanted to invest in the ground game in New York. And, you know, you guys have some very effective local parties. Um, but I think that's a very different style of organizing. You, you have some fantastic unions. You know, I'm a pro-union girl. Um, right. And, and they did some of the best organizing work when I was a candidate for me here as well. But there's a third leg of that organizing stool, which are the people who are operating every year, even in non-election years, engaging and registering voters, energizing your base, speaking to specific constituencies and communities. And that piece was harder to find in New York. And, And there were people who were looking to put real money to work, but they sort of didn't know where to go. And so you know, it's hard to get motivated maybe when when you have that confidence that it's a blue state, that abortion wasn't at risk the same way that it was here in Georgia, um, that you have leaders like Governor Hochul who believe in democracy and are not going to overthrow a free and fair election. And nevertheless, I think in these times, none of us can afford to take our eye off the ball. And I, I would think about whether that third leg of the organizing stool beyond your local parties, beyond your fantastic unions, um, really looking at that ground game consistent that's built over years and decades, um, targeting our democratic base, it would be a, an infrastructure that could really um, plus up democratic enthusiasm across New York and perhaps potentially claw back some of those more competitive seats say that ground, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you just really say that the ground level organizing is really the key here, that that's what has flipped Georgia. I think so. And and I think the thing that people don't get is how long that takes and how many people there are knocking doors, how many organizations there are. They're not all big fair fight level organizations, right? Some of these are hyper local. Um, Some of these are super targeted to a specific constituency. But, you know, for us, 2018 was kind of that initial shock to Republicans who were like, oh, my gosh, like we could actually lose ground in the state. And of course, Lucy McBath flipped the sixth congressional district. And then in 2020, that was when the big hit came. Right. Then we we not only knew we had the ground game, but I think we were able to even plus it up more and build the stakes for our voters more. And so, you know. New York is still a democratic state, but I would I would be careful because I feel like that second cycle into the shock was a way bigger hit here in Georgia for the entrenched party, which in our case was Republicans, 
And you guys don't have to have that same pattern, right? Like you're a democratic right. state. You're not a swing state. You could actually yeah. flip that momentum. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Right. But you could flip it back, but I would be, mm-hmm. I wouldn't take the eye off the ball because I don't mm-hmm. think 2022 was an anomaly. I think it was a warning shot. Yeah. And, and now investing in that ground game, energizing the base and those constituencies, really focusing on younger voters, communities of color, um, women, women as well. Um, but also not being afraid to go into those red, more rural districts. Um, that's that's where your margins are also in those statewide races, right, going to continue to build. And and that, I think, is the best way for you guys to claw back some of those seats in the House that I know were really competitive. They do not have to be red forever. Um, it's still New York, dang it. Like you, you yeah, guys can yeah. go and organize your way into winning some of those back, I think. And I think you can make ground in places that Republicans aren't expecting to have to play defense yeah. um, upstate. So that's the lessons I would look at it. But, you know, your local folks are going to have a much better handle on that than certainly I would. But I'm inspired by the the, the people here, in particular women and Black women, mm-hmm. especially, are some of the most incredible and effective organizers this state has ever seen. And honestly, we owe that 50-50 Senate to those organizers. Yeah, yeah the, the the backbone of the Democratic Party. Dem, um, Black women, you cannot underestimate how important their organizing and their votes are. So I, I, I just want to talk a little bit about, um, because I'm from Tennessee, so I'm fascinated by what's happening in Georgia, because growing up in Tennessee, it leaned more Democratic than Georgia did. And now Georgia's become purple, but Tennessee is this deep red Trumpy state um, but again, there are two states that are growing in population, right? Um, and they both have many similar traits. So, so what do you think is the difference and what lesson does this hold? Does this, again, go back to some of the ground level organizing or I would love your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it does go back to organizing, but I also think it it goes back to messengers who can who can outline the stakes. Right. I think part of what happened maybe, you know, in Georgia in particular, is we had these extraordinary messengers, right, including Stacey Abrams, including Senator Warnock. Like we've had people who could frame the debate as this is what's at stake, not just for you and your family, but for the country. So, you know, no pressure, but like, don't screw it up. Right. And in Tennessee, I don't see those same messengers on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, conversely, um, I think you've got a number of them in New York, right? And I, I think um, even if you look at uh, what Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez has done and her ability to sort of engage younger voters um, in particular, I think, and again, you've got them sort of up and down the ballot. It would take eons to name them all. Mm-hmm. But you, you guys do have some great messengers and, and you do have a, a, a rich tradition of honoring the dignity of like everyday families, right? Working class America, um, what it means to create those good union jobs that somebody can sort of use as an on-ramp to the middle class and to the American dream. Uh, I think here in Georgia, there was a period of time where we just lacked that. And then when Stacy ran in 2018, it, it gave us somebody to kind of 
rally around that messaging. And she's a very effective communicator. I think, I think we did a very good job in 2018. Um, the candidates did a great job in 2020 and 2021 uh, articulating for the electorate what was at stake and that, that this was something that rose above party and above politics to the very core of who we are as Americans. And that's such a powerful and compelling message. So I think the big delta between us and Tennessee is just the lack of that personality. And, and we see it in other Southern states as well, right? Right. Um, you know, I think Kentucky, Charles Booker and Amy McGrath have been great candidates. Um, you know, I think Charles in particular had a really solid message about what it means to sort of unite rural and urban Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um but in their case, the organizing and the the sort of demographic uh, or partisan demographics in terms of the makeup of the state aren't quite as far along and as competitive as Georgia. But I think there are places where we we need to build up messengers. So in closing, what do you what would you say is the number one thing that people at home can do? I mean, I know a lot of our activists who are listening to this have been engaged, but what would you say would be something that would make a difference here heading into this home stretch? Well, if Senator Schumer ever hears your podcast, I'll make sure to to do this first and say, if you have not donated, please donate. Um, because it, you know, I I, I kid, but um, in all seriousness, it is the currency, mm-hmm. quite literally, that we use to take a great messenger and make sure people hear the message. And so often in Georgia politics, really great messages and campaigns and candidates have just been under-resourced. Mm-hmm. And, and and that goes all the way down the ballot. So um, making sure that we do not leave Reverend Warnock sort of, you know, fighting Mike Tyson with one hand tied behind his back, so to speak, or fighting the, the werewolf slash vampire <laughs> fan of Herschel Walker with one hand tied behind his is, back. Yeah. yeah, by getting him the financial resources. Um, but But number two, I think, if you have friends or family um, who are down here, it is essential they vote, no matter how they feel, um, how comfortable they feel that Reverend Warnock will be reelected. We need all of those votes and we need to bank them early because it's an extremely bad flu season here. And right now, of course, we have the triple demic like everywhere else in the country with RSV and flu and COVID for our young kids. I, I have a nine-year-old and who's homesick today. I have an 11-year-old. You just never know when something like that's going to come up on election day. So don't wait. So if you have friends, family connections, or even people that you don't really like anymore, but you have their phone number or email in Georgia, make sure they're voting. Um, and then the last thing is really um, plug in with those organizers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, call New Georgia Project or Fair Fight or Black Voters Matter or Voto Latino or any one of these amazing groups who are organizing in our state and fighting for democracy and see if you can be a part of a phone bank or a text bank. Um, I've literally done it. I did it as a statewide candidate, actually, with one of your senators. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand came down and we led a phone bank together. And it was just great. You know, I like literally cold calling voters and asking if they'd consider voting for Stacey Abrams and me. Uh, It was it was a hoot, but it also really brings it home how much that person-to-person contact matters, because a lot of times people will have questions about, well, I don't know when I can vote or when early vote ends or what the hours are. So sign up to phone or text bank. I know it's weird. I still have my 917 phone number. So <laughs> right, right. I get text bank in Georgia with my 917, so can y'all. Um, you know, it's um, 
it's really going to take uh, it's really going to take the whole ecosystem of Democrats to make sure that that we get the representation Georgians deserve. And, and it's not Herschel Walker. If it were, we wouldn't have Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham literally like sitting on each side of Herschel Walker, propping him up right, um, right. so that he can make sure a Fox News interview. I mean, come on, folks. Like, it's that Fox was quite News. The scene, it's a I have to say. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we deserve better. We deserve to have Reverend Warnock, who I think, you know, you could argue has been one of the most effective freshman senators in a very long time in the chamber. He's an incredible orator. Um, but I also think he has crystal clarity around the civil and human rights issues of our days and voting rights and racial justice and equity um, and building an economy that can work for all of us. So right. find those places to plug in and get that man back to Washington <laughs> because we need him. And, you know, the 2024 cycle, the map is, um, I think, slightly more challenging for Democrats. Yes. Yeah. So that yeah. margin matters. That 50 seat matters a lot. Excellent. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and that's a great point to end on. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully people will be inspired to pick up the phone, send a text, incorporate some of the lessons that you talked about here in New York so we can move forward on a, on a good footing heading into 2024. Thank you so much. We appreciate it very much. We appreciate all the help. Georgia uh, Georgia's grateful. And I know this Georgia mama is for sure. Thanks for listening to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. Check out our website at indivisiblewestchester.org for the latest information about how to help get out the vote in Georgia.